I really can't reiterate how important it is to cultivate that space in your life to learn how to be present, to learn how to see those habits and patterns, right? And that, that kind of fork in the road where those old reactions are waiting and over time to make the space for these new choices because it is through choice that we actually get to create our future. Otherwise, and this is what most of us are doing when we're in that stuck space, are just repeating our past and getting increasingly more frustrated, more unfulfilled and more resentful and are doing all of the things to try to manage and cope. I'm Dr. Nicole LaPera. I'm a holistic psychologist, and this is Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Nicole, thank you for letting us be fast friends and letting me call you, Nicole. I appreciate it. And um, I usually ask my my guests, how did you get this job? I love that question. So I think my answer for that is my life's journey, really. As long as I can remember very intuitively, I was drawn to the mind, the brain, understanding people. So becoming a clinical psychologist and then evolving into working holistically as I do now, for me, just felt like part of my journey. So one might say I was born into it. That's awesome. I always like to ask, I like to go back in the chronology and ask, like, what was young Nicole thinking about when she was a little girl, thinking about what, what she wanted to be when she grew up? Um, and I ask that with context because a lot of people are doing some soul searching now, whether you're middle-aged, mid-career, trying to hit the reset button, trying to figure out what to do, or you're a young person, you know, um, I want to find out, like, what were your influences? Because I'm also very interested in, in nature versus nurture, and we can unpack that a little bit later. But what did you want to be when you grew up? As long as I can remember, like I said, I was fascinated with people. Um, looking back, I now understand it, that I think like a lot of us, um, from a very young age, I saw evidence of being different. Um, I think a lot of us feel different at our core. And yeah. for me, you know, I, I think from that place of, under curiosity, I think it began. Why am I different? Um, yeah. Drew kind of grew this, like I said, this intuitive desire to understand. Um, how were so, you different? How was I different? Um, yeah. I saw many ways that I felt different very early on um, in my family. I was born to parents who were a bit older in life. I had a 15 year old sister at the time I was born and an 18 year old brother. So very early on, I felt separate from my siblings. I felt like I was having a different family experience than most of my peers. You know, when we mm -hmm. go to school, we begin to have those points of comparison um, where we get to see what other people's life looks like. And very early on, like I said, I was very aware that my parents were older. Um, with me, that came a lot of anxiety around that, a lot of fears about them being older. And like I said, I... I think for me, it was seeing that different family structure that was really evident um, very early on. Yeah. And um, I, I love psychology, too. I love um, analyzing and thinking about my own behavior because it's very helpful for me to be, you know, take inventory and, and also, you know, get feedback from other people, right? Because um, I, I, I'm someone who likes to be in this constant state of trying to improve. Uh, I feel like a work in progress in many, many ways, but go, go deeper into that. So what were you afraid of? Like your parents were older. Were you afraid that they were going to not be with you very much longer? Was there like an attachment issue or abandonment issue? 
yeah, there was a lot of um, health-related anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. For me in particular, it was very real in the home. My sister, who was 15 years older than me, um, was pretty chronically ill from a young age. She had a okay. really severe asthma attack, um, yeah. which led her needing to be have a tracheotomy. Um, mm. She was living at home in my parents' care, and so they were around the clock needing care for you know a little okay. child with very real health concerns. And the reason why I share this is because my mother um, actually suffered a pretty sudden loss um, when her own father died of a heart attack pretty abruptly when she was in her early 20s. So both of these things are interacting. My mom, I think, carried her own, or I know, carried her own anxiety, fear of health. Um, whenever yeah. ever, ever anyone dies or you know falls ill very suddenly, that jolts us. We mm-hmm. find it, right, that life is transient and that people can leave. So from that space, I think my mom had her own anxiety that she you know carried with her, as we do. We all bring the past with us, or so I think. And then when she um, gave birth to my sister, and my sister obviously progressed into having her own chronic illnesses, I think for my mom it really brought the anxiety level uh, pretty pretty high. And I believe that all of those messages were communicated in the home. Even though we weren't saying, and my mom wasn't saying, oh, I'm nervous all the time, yeah. in the home was of that anxiety. So I was born, as we all are, a very attuned being, or so I believe. Mm-hmm. So I picked up on that. So for me, it was, it felt like a very real concern that my mom could die because I was introduced to that concept in a very indirect way, death, that is. And at, at a time, yeah. young, it's really overwhelming for a child. Yeah. Uh, maybe my reaction is, uh-oh, <laughs> I hope I'm not doing that same thing to my kids. Like, were you, uh, were you sort of like wrapped in metaphorical bubble wrap? Like, were they, were they extra careful around you? Or was it just like sort of the, the narrative, the storyline? No, not at all. They were, it was just the narrative, the storyline, and how it actually translated behaviorally is yeah. a lot of distraction. Uh, my mom and my dad's attention was on the next fire or the next imagined fire that they would either realistically, because it was happening, yeah. or you know, just fearful that something else could happen. Yeah. So for me, it felt like I, I had a lot of time, here's that word, alone, um, not really with support. Um, and again, this doesn't mean inactual behavior because I did have parents that I was very athletic. They showed up at games. They were there on the sidelines. We had dinner mm-hmm. every night together sitting physically around the same table. Um, so this loneliness that I'm describing is, is more emotional and it didn't yeah. come from over-focus of attention. For me, it came from almost an inability to pay that really focused attention. Yeah. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so you were an athlete. What was your sport? Um, I played many sports when I was younger, and I discovered by high school age that I was quite good at softball. Um, so mm. I continued to play softball throughout college, actually. Yeah. What was your position? I was a pitcher. Okay. So I like to, like, I'll use many signals, like, to do my um, pseudo-psychoanalysis of someone's character or, beha- you know, or their personality. Uh, sometimes it's based on the kind of shoes they wear or the car they drive. Sometimes it's the sport that they play. But I actually think that speaks a lot about you, that you're a pitcher, softball, and you played it through college. I mean, to me, I can read into that pretty deeply, I think, fairly accurately, and maybe figure out what kind of person you are. You're a baller, (laughs) I'm guessing. I mean, for me, you know, and, and you would be not incorrect in reading into it, because I do think that my performance... Um, performing up through college, you know, at the Division mm-hmm. One level, le- layer um, level, 
being in an Ivy League school, I was very academically driven. For mm-hmm. me, that was my distraction. That allowed yeah. me to focus my attention so I didn't have to feel all of the underlying stuff, feelings that for me had been bubbling up, accumulating over time. It was also how I got attention. Like I said, my parents were at those softball fields. They celebrated yeah. my A's. I got money for good grades. So mm-hmm. it does make sense that that began, it became my channel. And I think it does for a lot of us. And it's confusing from the outside. And this actually led me into what I now refer to as my, my own dark night of the soul, really just questioning myself from top to bottom, including my profession, um, leading me you know, through my own healing journey. Um, and I, what I realized is that you know, a lot of people, I do think, are engaging in these distractions. And from the outside, life looks great. If you would have looked at my life, you would have wondered why I was struggling, quote unquote, in the way that I felt to be. Right. She's got everything going for her. She's yeah. a top athlete. She's doing well in school. You know, she's attractive. She's probably outgoing, you know, all these things. Yeah. It feels like you check all the boxes. And then there's, I think for many of us, that voice inside where we do shame ourselves. We do look around and wonder what the heck is wrong with me. And for me, by that point in my life, I had the private practice. I had been working in all different contexts of inpatient, outpatient, people with substance abuse patterns and issues, et cetera. So meaning I saw people who quote unquote, or so I believe had it worse based on their experiences or current living experiences. Yet I still saw the same habits and patterns in myself as I saw in them. So for me, um, a lot of us can carry shame. I did entertain a narrative of brokenness. I wondered what genetically must be wrong with me, my brain, right? Maybe I just, I'm not happy. Maybe I'm just a sad, you know, depressed, feelingless person. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, what I came to realize, Brian, is that none of that is the case. Um, again, that the reason that I was feeling the way I was was from an accumulation of these life experiences, though I share all of this to also acknowledge why I speak about um, things like, especially me, someone who looks outwardly to be doing just fine, um, how shameful that can be for many of us when we don't feel like we're doing fine internally. Yeah. So I have I have so many questions. It's so interesting. I really appreciate you sharing that personal stuff. Um, I want to talk about nature versus nurture and your opinion on that. Uh, and I'll give you more context to why I think that's relevant to this conversation. And I'm happy to share with you my own uh, personal story, which I would love your feedback on. I know we can't do maybe a a session together here, but maybe we could do a quasi session where you can analyze me and maybe give me some tips and pointers. But before that, I want to ask about maybe your, you know, this magnetism or this um, being drawn to understanding human behavior. Um, Do you think that's common with people who struggle with these types of issues? I know I've I've been there. I, I considered, wow, I would love to study more about psychology. I did a little bit in college um, and I, and I, toyed with the idea of, of majoring in psychology just because I thought it was so fascinating. I ended up going the marketing route, um, which, you know, is actually very helpful to understand human behavior, psychology and all that. But uh, how is that working for you as someone who, you know, struggled with these issues that you talk about and then going into a profession where you sort of have to be the leader, the boss, the person in charge, the healthy one. How do, is, is that common? How does it work? 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, you know, that seek to understand that are driven into the field. Um, yeah. What I know, let me just back up a minute. What I know about humans is that we don't like to not know. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like, you know, right. that blank line or that dot, dot, dot. So in absence of that knowing, we're driven to attempt things to understand. So that's how yeah. I understand um, my own, that kind of intuitive ping setting me out on that journey to understand it's because I didn't get it. I didn't know why, right? My yeah. friend wasn't doing the same things I would be offering my friend or responding in the same way to a similar event, right? I didn't understand. So there was that uncertainty. And I think like most of us, we don't like that uncertainty. So to gain control, to feel safe, we see. Yeah. So if I can understand by, you know, an algorithm or I can pinpoint that this is why and I can predict then what the person will do next, I feel safer. And I'm using these words really intentionally, Brian, because we all are really evolutionarily wired to keep ourselves safe. And according to our, evo our, our biology, safety is inherent in that which is familiar. Even if it's not logically giving us the life we want, it's the path we understand. Yeah. And th that word control, whether it's a trigger for me or not, it really rings true. It's very relatable because I think that's probably at the heart of several of the issues wh that I struggle with, like feeling like a lack of control or, uh, you know, wanting to have more control over the outcome, whatnot. So I'd love to explore that more. Um, let's go back to nature versus nurture. You know, this show is watched by entrepreneurs, people who have small businesses, who, or, or maybe they have, maybe they're working for the man and they have a, a side hustle that they dream about being their main thing one day. And some people say, you know, oh, I, I'm not cut out for this, or I was born to do this. What's your take on are entrepreneurs born or made? Or psychologists, are they born or made? We can talk about that too. Before I dive into the answer, I just want to share with everyone that I was one of those people that really did not feel that I had the quote unquote, this is the language my mind would use, the business mind. Mm -hmm. um, I worked for a family that was very much consistent. And one of the messages of consistency was around security of income. Um, a father who very much was a, a proponent of me actually working for someone else, of when I shared with my family I was going into private practice, which is a version of business ownership, they were like, oh, are you sure? What happens when right payment doesn't come in? Are you going to be able to pay your bills? And I see. I share my experience of that because for a very long time I did entertain that belief. I did not think I was business-minded. I did not think I knew how to run a business. And yet here I am a decade or so later running a business and feeling very much entrepreneurial um, creative-minded. So to answer that question, um, nature versus nurture. For a very long time in my field, we were taught um, a model of genetics that's called genetic determinism, which is simply, as I often do simplify things, it's just the idea that our genes, the nature we're born at birth, is the sole determinant of what happens in life. So if you're born with the genetic chip to get that medical or psychological anxiety for me, right? you're going to inevitably have that condition later in life or at some point in life, right. making the conversation of the work I was doing with my past clients one merely of management. How can we give you the medication or provide you with the tools to tolerate life within this spectrum of having the disease right. disorder? Yeah. 
We now know that's not true. Um, several years, decade ago or so, we started to realize and, and really believe in a new science of epigenetics, which says, yes, we all are born with genes and chromosomes and all of that biology. However, we're not as powerless as we once thought we were. The choices that we're making day in and day out, how we're caring for our body, the sleep we're getting, the stress that we either can or cannot manage, that is actually going to be, as they say, right, what fires the gun, what results mm -hmm. in whether or not we get that medical or psychological condition or not. I believe, actually, Brian, that our life experiences, those choices that we're making day in and day out, not only determine whether or not we're going to get a condition or not, I actually believe that they determine our personality, our just general practiced way of being. So to answer your question, it's both, um, though a lot of us are living stuck in these habits and patterns that we've been repeating since childhood, falsely yeah. believing that we have no other option. And this was me included. So like I said, I had this conversation with myself around everything from my body. I saw similar patterns in digestion, sleep issues in my whole family. So for a very long time, I thought I was gifted with that unfortunate genetic, and here I am having it. Same thing right. with society. I saw it like I shared earlier. In my mom, in my family, whether or not she wanted to admit it or not, there, there's who gifted me that genetic component. Mm -hmm. If we really want to dive into it, a lot of my personality for a long time was operating very similar to those that I was modeled, the relationships that I experienced growing up. Um, yeah. so for a very long time, I thought I was, you know, genetically always going to have anxiety. And yeah. all of those personality traits, I adopted very similar to my mom, my dad. And I did believe that in that, you know, kind of excluded me from being a business person, from understanding business. So for me in my healing, and this is why I proclaim this from the rooftops, because I, if I can be the person who opens that door who just provides a little bit of information. If you did think you were inevitably destined to, whether, again, medical, psychological, or maybe inevitably destined to not be able to have your own business, if I can be someone that can offer, right, can slip that door open a bit, um, because I, I do believe that incredible change is possible and that nothing is really as set in stone as we once believed. I love that. And um, it reminds me of that Stevie Nicks song i've been afraid of changing since i built my life around you you know that yeah. that whole idea that it's hard to change because we we tell ourselves those same stories and and i love what you said you know if i can sort of restate it's something i also learned uh interestingly enough from caesar milan the dog whisperer who's like this renowned dog guy and he said, it turns out, Brian, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Mm -hmm. And and it, it sounds like you're saying the same thing for humans. Like we're not destined to live the story that we've been told or we've told ourselves, whether we think it's genetic or biologic or whatever. There's We have the power to change certain things. And I think that's a really powerful message. Yeah, um, it's incredibly powerful. And, and our, our bodies and our brains actually show that. Again, we now know of something called neuroplasticity. There was a very long time we entertained this idea that our brains were done developing in our 20s. Now we know that's, that's grossly untrue. We can fire and wire, as we like to say, yeah. new neural networks all through life. And I was actually, I put up a post today and I had a bunch of uh, people in my virtual membership, the Self Healer Circle, responding 
in their 60s, in their 70s, expressing gratitude for these small changes that they're now beginning to make in their life. And this is decades that I think a lot of people do feel like, oh, well, by then, you know, can't teach old dog new tricks type of thing. Um, and here we have a lot of humans now from around the world really challenging that through their own life experience. Yeah. It's nice to have representation so that we can see that it's possible. I want to go back to something you said about your dad. Um, I think the advice was really great and very subtle. Maybe the audience might have missed it. But I think we have to be really careful. You know, in journalism, um, and I have sort of a foot in both country, right? I'm doing editorial, and I'm also doing commercial production and, and documentary storytelling. But in, in journalism in particular, they always talk about considered the source. And sometimes the sources of our information are good and accurate, uh, full of facts and whatnot. And then sometimes they're biased. Well, I would say maybe all the time they're biased. But like, think about your dad. Um, you know, he gave you this advice, which was probably with good intentions, very sage advice, like, be careful, don't go work for yourself, because it's not as safe and secure as going to work for someone else. So you can just get a regular paycheck. And, you know, sure, 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago, that was the model, right? You go to school, you get your piece of paper, you go work for a company for 30 years, you get your pension, your gold watch, and then you're good, right? Um, and so maybe that was what worked for him. But I think we have to be really careful about um, the advice that we get. We need to run it through the filter of, okay, who is this coming from? Um, and like, what is their context and what is their experience? Because sometimes it can go both ways, right? We get good ex people who have wisdom, people who have lived longer than us or, uh, or can see something that we don't, but also heavily biased from a certain um, era or lifestyle or upbringing, whatnot, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling um, because I, I, I believe, and I, I would go as far to say, and I love that suggestion of consider the source, I would go as far to say that we are all subjective to some degree. So yeah. anything we're hearing from someone outside of ourselves is colored inevitably in their experience, their life, the yeah. music they've assigned. So we can use that. That's not to say throw out every, every suggestion or any observation that anyone has ever shared with me and don't take any feedback. I know best. Absolutely not. I've gotten some of the hardest feedback to swallow from those closest to me who are able to see me from a bit more objective. So those yeah. lived experiences and part of the goal that my intention of using social media was to begin to have an outlet to speak my journey, my truth with the hope that maybe one or two humans out there might resonate with some aspect of it. I had no expectation it was going to take off and be so universally resonant. However, I, I say that, and I do that, and I do this daily, and I will continue to share my story and urge everyone else who does. Because I believe when we're all showing up in our truth, when we're all speaking based on our lived experience, even though it will all be subjective to some extent, we can learn to hear it and to pick the pieces that we resonate with as a human and incorporate or integrate that into our own journey. I believe that the collective itself, other humans, are the infinite source of wisdom to inform our own journeys and then we live that into our experience for ourselves. And I don't think anything is a greater teacher than our own lived experience. Yeah, and I like that idea. To me, that sounds a lot like there really is no particular destination. It's all is just a process of becoming. And, you know, uh, we're either, it's either plus minus, right? Like, so we're, we're either, 
losing ground or we're gaining ground on who we want to become based on our choices, right? Yeah, I'm smiling really big because uh, I, I was the first person. I think I actually led quite a few expeditions to find the elusive state of doneness. I used to call my utopian hippie hammock where I could just throw my peace signs, let the air in my hair, and just have nothing else to do. Be done. Yeah. As I I've made shield <laughs> over. Just yeah. yeah. And and again, if anyone's listening and it's found that place, um, all ears, though I'm settling into the, the reality in a sense that that's not the case. That we are all on the journey, on the process. That for many of us is the most difficult uh, you know, space to inhabit that knowing that there is no end and like I that's why I shared my experience because for me that was hard it was hard to acknowledge that this is ongoing and that life will continue to shift and change and even if I think I know how to navigate life in my now 38 year old body I don't know what 48 is going to be like I don't know what 50 and 68 is going to be like I might have to modify my tools and myself at those different stages so yeah. I can go as far to make a case that done we don't really want to achieve that state of doneness because we are ever changing unfortunately because i think that too provides a lot of challenge for a lot of us yeah I, for me it goes back to control so there are some things that i want to check the box so that i feel a certain degree of control and that could be you know i feel safe and secure in my job or with my family there's some big ticket items that i want to feel like okay uh, i don't want to say done but it's like I'm in a good place. Um, let's go back to well, this idea of maybe feeling inadequate or broken. Um, it's a topic I think that you've talked about a lot, in particularly in the book, about getting stuck. And I think it's a general theme that maybe people are feeling now too. What advice do you have? Um, and maybe let's also paint a picture of what being stuck looks like and feels like, and then how do we get out of it? Yeah, I'm stop at starting at the end. Um, just describing what stuff is, um, because that will help us evolve the conversation into why so many of us feel broken, unworthy, inadequate in all of the different ways that we do. So the reason why we're stuck, and I saw this very clearly in my practice. So because just going back to something you said earlier, right? I am the helper. I am the person who did all the studying on the mind. So when someone came into my office, my task, or so it seemed was to impart the tools so that they could understand their mind by observing, by giving insights, right, so that they got themselves better mm -hmm. so that hypothetically they could go out and do better. Well, you could fix them. <laughs> I could fix them. What I yeah. realized is that I wasn't good at fixing people, that people weren't actually, myself included, I'd been in all of the different types of therapy. I laid on a couch in analysis multiple times a week. I, did, I was on medication. I'd done it all. I noticed in my life a similar pattern of a broken bridge, as I call it, between insight with, by this point, I'd been logging years with the same clients. We had incredible, I had incredibly insightful people who understood all of the bad habits that weren't serving them and even maybe knew the pathway out. They knew that they could start doing these new things in those moments and create change. However, like I said, that broken bridge, week after week, I would have the same reports of the same symptoms, the same arguments, the same patterns, none yeah. of which we could maintain change around. So in my, in my dark night of the soul, I really did wonder how good I was at my job. I can't create change in my life. I'm not helping them change. What am I doing here? I felt yeah. so disempowered until I realized how powerful our subconscious mind is. 
this deeper level of being that operates outside of our awareness that contains all of the habits and patterns that most of us are repeating, depending on the source that you read, upwards of 80-90% of our day. So just to use that example, those insightful conversations, all those moments that many of us have where we can know better, we could problem solve, and we have a new plan of action, the next time this thing happens, that is coming from that a different part of our brain, our conscious mind. It's the ever-powerful space that allows us to be a creator of our future. However, when we shift into our day-to-day life, many of us are allowing that autopilot, that reactive space, the thing that always knows what comes next because it is driven by the familiar so that it can produce the same response that it thinks keeps it safe, oftentimes countering what our conscious mind wants. So in that space, the reason why I shared all that, this can carry, we can carry a lot of shame. We can wonder why we're broken and maybe this path isn't for me because I can't seem to stay on it long enough to get there. Um, and what I now realize is you can't, we can't get there. None of us can as humans because we're allowing our past to dictate our choices from the daily behaviors we engage in. We're so habitual. Yeah. The daily thoughts our mind is thinking. The longer we think thoughts, the more our, our body reacts emotionally, our energy, yeah. change, our hormones change. We become very patterned in the way of being, the way we are relating to our others in our world, to just the world around us, to our past, to our future. All of that is in our subconscious mind. And in there, for many of us, are those deep root beliefs of not worthiness that began to be formed usually very early on in life where experiences resulted in some version of that feeling. If those experiences get repeated consistently enough, now we have a belief. So many of us in that, in the, that recess of our subconscious has some version of not feeling fully worthy um, that often, like I said, if we're not conscious, drives our daily behaviors. Hey, thanks for watching. And now a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at the dot store domains. Dot store domains is where you can get your own custom dot store to set up your own site to sell products and services. Different from another dot com or dot net extension, the dot store domain really gives your customers a destination to shop for your stuff. Think about having your own domain plus a dot store. It instantly tells people that your website has a store. I tried it out myself and I set up my own dot store with Behind the Brand. It's Behind the Brand dot store. And you can find some of my favorite books from some of the authors who've been on this show. Uh, books for sale at great prices, even better than Amazon. You can get your own dot store domain by going to my special link. It's a bit.ly link. So it's bit.ly forward slash your custom store. That's bit.ly forward slash your custom store. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay. Um, trying to get my head around that. That is really actually like I, I would eat that up in a book. I would love to digest that, which I have, by the way. Um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it right now. And uh, what comes to my mind is, is it possible that I'm stuck and I don't know it? I think it's possible that a lot of us are stuck in mm-hmm. weights and we don't know it. Because when we are in that autopilot, we are actually blind to all of those habits because they just are. They're just what we do first thing when we get up. They're just how we arrange our meals throughout the day. It's just how I react in each of these moments, not knowing that it's not genetically driven, not knowing 
that they, they, all of these things that I just described are just practice habits. Um, so for those out there that might be questioning, wondering, am I stuck? The first uh, task at hand, if you will, is to discover what it feels like to be conscious, to tap yeah. into that prefrontal cortex, to use either the ever-present breath that each of us are carrying around with us living in this human body as our focal point of attention, meaning when I'm lost in thought somewhere else, focusing my full attention on being in my body through focusing on its just in-breath and its out-breath. We can also use our sensory experiences of this moment. This moment is when I am fully present to the moment at hand, I'm firing up that prefrontal cortex. I'm in my conscious mind. Can I, can I interrupt and can we just go back a little bit? Because I'm maybe just putting myself in the shoes right now thinking maybe I think I'm, I'm fine. All is well in here. All is well, maybe. <laughs> um, so what are some signals that I might not actually have all the facts that I might have maybe a distorted version or vision of me being okay? Um, what are some signals that I might be stuck and not know it? Cause I, I, I find myself sometimes there like thinking everything's great. And then it's like all of a sudden, like the smallest of things, mountain out of molehill kind of thing. It's like I'm triggered or something goes wrong. And it's like, uh Oh, I'm not as great as I thought I was because this shouldn't be disrupting my whole world, but it is. Really? So, what are things like you just described, Brian, that's a great um, example to use when we're feeling something that almost feels categorically impossibly big. Uh, yeah. Or when we have the loved ones around us who are very gently and kindly telling us that we're quote unquote overreacting. Right. Um, and again, I think we can settle into when we do feel our experiences. For me, dishes, things in the house would produce me to fly in these cycles of agitation. And as I pulled back, I really had to explore, is it dishes that's bothering me? And would I realize? No. It was the meaning that my subconscious made out of those dishes, bringing me back to this experience in childhood where all of these feelings are understandable. So feelings, a great marker, consistent patterns and habits and feelings. Are you always kind of, no matter what you do, you're somehow anxious again, or no matter what you do, you're somehow sad again or left again. Those type of patternings um, can be another great place to look. Yeah, and it's something you talk a lot about in the book is recognizing patterns. I think it's really important because, you know, it is hard to see when it's happening inside of you. You know, you whether you call it uh, cognitive dissonance or um, or uh, what is that other bias um, that's very popular? Um, confirmation. confirmation confirmation bias. You know. Uh, I always agree with myself, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It is hard to see and recognize the patterns. It, it, what is the way out? I mean, is therapy the only way out? I mean, how do we how do we recognize these patterns? So we can't see them ourselves. Yeah, yeah, becoming conscious. Like I said, discovering how it feels to be yeah. in conscious in, in your conscious mind, fully present to the moment. What I noticed as soon as I started tapping in, and I noticed two things: how difficult it was. How my monkey mind always tried to bring my attention. Well, first and foremost, when I checked in with myself, I noticed I didn't know where I was. I very endearingly called it my spaceship. Um, Sometimes I'd be like, oh, right, you were just, you know, rehearsing that argument that you and your partner had this morning. Or, oh, right, you're worrying about tomorrow. Sometimes it was indescribable. I just wasn't really here. So I noticed that. So then as a byproduct of that, I noticed how hard it was to come here and to be present here. 
Yeah, um, I call it that. You begin to 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 I think differentiate and then see the patterns that I'm describing. I call it taking inventory. In high school, I had this job where I worked in a, like a warehouse doing really terrible mundane work. And inventory was like one of my most hated times. But like I think about those times when, I don't know, it's like a circuit breaker pops or something goes wrong. And then I find myself back to that warehouse in my mind taking inventory like, okay, do I have all these things? Am I missing some things? Like uh, what do I need? You know, what needs to be reordered? What's low and and anyway, it's just a, a time of reflection. Um, and so maybe we could use a specific example in my life, and you can sort of analyze, give me some tips of, of a reoccurring habit. It's a bad habit. Um, so one of, one of my triggers, one of my habits is I feel like I really blow rejection out of proportion. I'm not good with rejection. I know this. Um, I admit it. <laughs> and like, I'll give you a, a very specific example that's happened lately. So um, on a regular basis, I get pitched for this show. I mean, I probably get, you know, 50 pitches a day at least, which is not a big number, but, you know, over a month time that adds up. And, and so me and my team will go through the different people that want to be on the show. And so um, I have to pick you for this show. It's like, I look at it through several different lenses. Like, is this valuable to my audience? You know, is it interesting to me? Is it something I can sink my teeth into? There's lots of different criteria. And at the end of the day, out of those 50, you know, maybe 48 are, they're good, but they're not great. And so I have to say no to some really good ones in order to make room for the great ones. And, and then there are those that, that don't fall over my fence that like I have like a little hit list, like people, a wish list, let's call it. And those people that I would really like to talk to because they've inspired me or they've been on a bucket list. And, and then I'll reach out to them and they'll say no. And I'm just like, I'm so injured. It's like, ah, oh, you know, the, the irony, it's like, you have no idea how you changed my life through your books or your whatever. I'm so inspired. I talk about you constantly on this show it's like you know i live it i breathe it mm -hmm. and then you said my hero says no you cannot be my sidekick or you know whatever that is and it's just like oh then i revert to this knee-jerk reaction and i'm by the way i'm totally aware of how wrong this is but like my first knee-jerk reaction is fine then you can never be on this show it's like <laughs> i like it's like a i i don't know it's like a self-sabotage kind of thing like oh yeah well, you rejected me guess what i'm gonna reject you it's that kind of pettiness that <laughs> it's like a good angel bad angel on my shoulder right and it's like i recognize it i see the bad angel i'm like that's stupid brian you're so petty and lame quit that and then you know, the other angel's like, well, you know, they have no idea how much you care. It's like this back and forth battle in my mind. Um, can you help me with this? I just can't, can't, can't get rid of it. Well, I, I thank you for sharing that personal experience with me, Brian. And the first thing I want to offer um, is a possible reframe for you and anyone out there listening who hears that word bad in their mind. Because mm -hmm. um, I, and in my explanation, you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit about how, you know, I believe that those habits and patterns, even around rejection, which a lot of us have, 
um, fears about rejection, you know, overreactions, if you will. Though I don't believe they're overreactions at all around rejection. Um, I think a lot of us, a lot of us experience that um, and have concerns about that and then, you know, arrange our life in avoidance of it. And I believe that even the narratives and your way of being that bad angel who wants to maybe punish or, right, the good angel is trying to talk that bad angel off the, off the rope, I believe all of that had a purpose. Um, and again, the purpose was usually installed, if you will, into our hardware of that subconscious at that very young age. So in childhood, I'm going to go as far uh, to, to uh, pronounce what I believe is a quite universal desire that, and every human soul that I've met, I think, universally shares, and that desire is to be accepted. Um, we are all down to our genetics, you know, wired, like I said, to relate, to interact with other people. And in our infancy, when we're just here on planet Earth, that desire is actually integrated, connected to our desire, to our, to our ability to sustain life. We are the one mammal that's born and capable of keeping ourselves alive as a human infant. So I'm sharing all this because our bonds to our caregivers, whomever they might be, acknowledging that it really does differ for each of us, are our lifeline. We need to be connected to these humans. So the desire to be loved, right, to be seen, heard, and understood, that's what I kind of encapture, what I mean when I say that universal desire to be connected, to be loved, that we share as humans, again, originates very early on. And yeah. when we don't feel that consistently based on big, bad things that happen to us or just consistent dynamics that are at play in our family, we get hurt. And as the adaptive little creature that we are, we decide that we don't like the feeling of being hurt in this way. So we're going to put up all of these protections. We're going to do things differently moving forward. We're going to avoid the possibility of this level of pain happening. We're going to maybe tell ourselves a story that goes along with why we're going to avoid all of this so that it's comfortable for us to continue on. Yeah. So I'm sharing the background of all of this to A, normalize the fear of rejection that I think a lot of us have, and also to, to voice something else that, that happens. At that early time when we didn't feel loved, because of the developmental state of our brain, literally, we can only attribute an I reason, an individual reason, meaning mom can't, so I'll use my mom as an example. My mom, who was very distracted, caring, for the world around me, my siblings included, her own anxiety was internally preoccupied, right, was unavailable to me. At right. that developmental stage, I couldn't pull back like an adult and say, oh, like I am speaking to you now. My mom was distracted for all of the reasons, and it's totally understandable that she can't be available to me right now in my pain. The only thing that my mind could do at that time is make it about me. I'm not worthy of love in this moment. I'm bad. I'm a bad girl. I'm not deserving of my mom's love. Now, yeah. again, remember, we entertain this as our truth. The more we practice that as our truth, we don't grow out of that egocentric, is what it's called, vantage point. So right. in those moments, anyone who's feeling a fear of rejection, chances are we're reading that letter about, you know, so-and-so who's declining my invitation, and we're almost regressing to that child who I'm being declined because I'm not good in this moment. Little do we know, and if we pulled back as an adult, we don't have any idea why that person can't or won't attend our recording. It might have nothing to do with us at all. And if we can expand and create that space to make another explanation possible, 
we can go a long way to invite a new response from ourselves. And yeah. then, like I said, over time, we can begin to kind of uh, take down, the, deconstruct those old beliefs and let in experiences that can allow us to form new ones in the future. Yeah, well said. Thank you. And, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm grown up now. You know, I have some life experience. And so it's funny because I also know, in logically speaking, how absurd my reaction is, the feeling. Um, and I've proved myself wrong time and again that um, no is most often just a no for now. And that when I ask six months or a year from now again, I get a different answer. I get yes. And so I, I tend to fall into this absolute kind of thinking, all or nothing thinking, which is detrimental. Um, it still hurts in the moment, and you are absolutely right. I also recognize the root of it. So, like, I can tell you that um, I, you know, I have a certain amount of rejection baggage that I carry along with me that I can't seem to let go of. And that comes, you know, my mom was married three times before I was 16 years old. Um, I didn't have a dad growing up, and I definitely felt like, you know, rejected, abandoned. I have abandonment issues, I feel. Um, and and I don't have any trouble, at least I don't think I have trouble um, going for it. Like, I don't mind, you know, I'm married now, but when I walked up on my girl, my wife, my then-girlfriend, to ask her out, I, I had all the courage in the world, even though I was also prepared for rejection. It didn't happen, fortunately, but... Um, I don't have any problem with the ask or, or going for it. It's like when I get the answer that I'm not happy with <laughs> that very selfishly I want, then it's like, I have to deal with the, the consequences, the reverberations, you know, the, and I almost feel like, oh, you just don't know how great I am. <laughs> like I have maybe this distorted view of confidence, like overconfidence, like, um, you have no idea what you're missing out on kind of thing in the back of my mind because possibly that's a defense mechanism, right? Like, um, so that I don't just crumble in a, or, or melt in a pile of goo for being rejected. I don't know. It's difficult. It's difficult to, to feel yeah. once we show ourself, our full self, that someone might not be interested in whatever right. type of interaction, exchange, or relationship with us. I think and talk and deal a lot around with the concept of disappointment too. Even in those relationships where I might have a pre-established dynamic, if in any moment, you know, I choose not to or I'm unable to be available to someone else's need, for yeah. me, that's incredibly a difficult place to be. And that's the truth of, and you'll often hear me cite that as the truth of, of our reality here. We're not going to be quote unquote for everyone. We're not going to be able or choose or not everyone's going to choose to enter into different types of relationships that we might otherwise wish they had. And that's yeah. part of learning how to navigate the complexity of our, our human emotional experience. Talk to me about some advice about how to let go of that habit of mine or other people. I guess another way to, to frame it is sometimes I hold a grudge. Um, although I will say, you know, I have learned a thing or two that really going back and trying a different path or a different method. Sometimes it's timing. It's a no for now. Um, trying to take into consideration the other person's point of view or even where they're at in their life. Maybe they're going through a crisis and I just don't know it. All those things. But still, what advice do you have 
to people who might be holding on to a grudge or holding on to a story that they ought to be letting go of, like me. Yeah, so those of us that are holding on to grudges, struggling, you know, part of healing is becoming aware of the habits and patterns that continue to shape our life. And part of that, for a lot of us, does activate anger, resentment, and all of the feelings that are difficult to deal with. So for some, we can gain healing. And just like I said, now from our adult self, with the maturity and the ability developmentally to do that pullback, that might be enough. It might be enough to say, so the example I gave earlier myself, now that I'm in my adult mind, I can understand why my mom was unavailable to me. While I still might be hurt or angry, now that reframe allows me to see her as a limited, wounded individual based on her own past upbringing and experiences. I don't have to take it personally, and now I can make space for a new feeling about my mom, empathy or whatever it might be. Um, that's what I was going to ask. Is, is helpful. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is it still okay for me to be disappointed, upset, even angry? Is I that okay? And uh, is, is a very understated word in our human dictionary, and I think a lot of us, or I know a lot of us, sub that word out for but. And when we say that word but... I'm sad, but I'm, you know, understanding at the same time, we're negating the first thing that we said. So the more flexible, that's the language I use, that we can get in saying that word and, we have an incredibly complicated experience here emotionally as humans. We can feel multiple ways about one thing, one event, one person. So we can feel disappointed, hurt, upset, empathetic, compassionate, and loving all at once. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, let's go through some of the glossaries. I loved some of the glossary of holistic psychology terms. And I'll just name a few and maybe you can break it down or maybe give me a little story or explanation. I, I love these. Um, how would you define you know, authentic love? Love you know, is one of these things that we could use a lot more of. Um, it can be it can elude us. Uh, it can cloud our judgment. Um, how do you define authentic love? So I'll start by what I, I I believe many of us are using as our definition for love and then ask, answer what authentic love is to me. So the definition that most of us humans, individuals, adults that are often in relationship, this includes friendships included and our family relationships and, of course, our romantic partners, The definition of love that most of us are operating within is that earliest model. However love felt, was experienced, how I had to show up to ensure, again, right, that I maintain that connectedness like we were talking about earlier, that's going to be how I define love now. That's going to be what feels familiar to me now. Chances are the dynamics in those relationships that we're using to define love, right, likely were the result of some compromises around ourselves compromises that we made in our emotions, right? Having a family who, like mine, doesn't really acknowledge emotions before long, I became, and this was my moniker in my home, nothing bothers Nicole because I didn't share anything that actually bothered me because I was taught indirectly. None of this was, I wasn't sat down and said, we don't talk about feelings. No, it was just feelings weren't talked about. So mom and dad aren't going to sit down at a dinner table and, and, you know, share how they were sad that day. So probably I wasn't going to either. Right. Uh, so again, I'm sharing sharing that the, that would be a compromise. And before I knew it, I became emotionless. And then I never really shared any aspect of my emotion 
in my relationship. So that, that felt like love to me. The exchange would be complaints around anxiety and stress. Again, that's how my family operated. That's how I felt like I was being loved. When someone showed up to listen to me, and this is, I did a lot of what I call emotional dumping, continuing to share my issues, my problem from my perspective with no awareness of whether or not the person was available to receive me in that moment or what the impact was on them. So we are operating with definitions of love, most of us, that we've that are remnants of those earliest dynamics. So most of us probably want to shift and change some of the ways that we're showing up in a relationship, and also to allow others to show up differently. And yeah. authentic love to me is creating the space and the safety to not only show up in full self-expression, where I can express my physical needs, my emotional needs, and my spiritual self—meaning just be who I am in any given moment—that changes, remember, and shifts as I age, as I mature, as I evolve, and also to create the space and the safety for whomever it is around me, my friend, my sister, my partner, to do the same. Yeah, I love that. And I've been hyper-focused on um, trying with my children, you know, just trying to be less conditional with my love, less judgmental, you know, trying not to... Um, put it through the the screen or the filter of my own experience, just simply trying to, to be there, be more empathetic um, without conditions, you know, like just just be there for them. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, here's another one. How about, uh, can you talk about boundaries? boundaries. So boundary is another one in there. I'm um, giggling at boundaries because that is not a concept that I was taught um, or would even know what, what the heck a boundary was for quite some time until I came to realize how I had none in my life, uh, how integral they are. And now I obviously talk about it often and been, I've found that a lot of humans are, are not clear um, on what a boundary is or are a bit confused about using boundaries and whether or not it's appropriate, okay, nice uh, to do so. So, and I giggle when I say that because if, if I'm honest, boundaries were probably one of the most integral practices um, pretty generally in my healing experience. So what is a boundary? A boundary is a limit. It's a separation, a space where I can carve out to safely express myself. Here we go again, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, separating me from the often differing experiences of someone else. So going back to parenting just really quickly, it is really hard to be unconditionally, to, to save the space for someone else to be them when the way they're reacting is different than the way we would react in a given moment. Remember when I said earlier that we're all subjective, we're even doing that with our own children. So if, if your oh, child yeah. comes home, right, and something upset them at the schoolyard, that you ran through your filter and wouldn't necessarily be upsetting to you, or maybe the converse. Maybe it was so upsetting to you because it happened to you as a kid and now hearing your child, I don't know how it feels to have a child. I don't have them. I can imagine oh, the amount of love and care and concern and empathy you would have for your offspring. So either way, right, we can change the way that we're reacting in that moment because we're responding to us and to how we're feeling and not holding that space that I was yeah. describing earlier um, for someone else. So the boundaries and utilizing boundaries are those limits, are things that we can put in place ways of being where we can begin to modify how we're meeting or how we're setting up our environment or our relationships to ensure that our needs get met for ourselves. Yeah. 
I, I was thinking back to what you started saying in the very beginning of our talk, and I was getting a little bit worried because, so I have a 12-year-old son, and there's a pretty big age gap between um, him and his sister. And I started thinking, uh oh, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm doing it wrong. But uh, also back to conditions, like I caught myself when, when he'd get upset or something, um, like I would put conditions on him to say, I'm not going to talk to you until you behave this way. And I realized that it was a condition to accept him or be empathetic or just be there and love him uh, for when he needed me. And and I've since tried to correct that, but I, I'm afraid that probably I'm falling into falling into that more, more often than I'm not, but uh, I, I'm glad that you pointed it out. And I love the boundary thing too. How about um, boundaries with respects to um, pleasers? I can, I can be a pleaser once in a while, maybe more, more than I like to admit. Um, what advice do you have for pleasers with boundaries? So speaking as a recovering people pleaser um, from a codependent family, so what that means really is lacking those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Everyone operating in groupthink as a unit. Again, a lot of conditionality. You know, yeah. If you operate like this, you're in in-group, and if you're not, you're part of out-group. And again, as a child, being in in-group is, is really important. It's, it's dire. You know, it, it has those consequences. Um, so I think, you know, understanding boundaries and having that people-pleasing personality, that's why they were elusive to me, and that's why I think it's really important. A lot of us adapt that model, that way of being, that mask, that role, um, putting other people and their needs first as an attempt to ensure that we're getting our needs met, though often indirectly. So just to be clear about a boundary, too, um, because while it does have repercussions of the people around us, Boundaries are for us. So even in that instance, it's actually is appropriate sometimes if the person we're speaking to, right, whether it's our, you know, our partner or even our child, if they are operating in a way that is dysregulating and completely dysregulating for us, staying present to that conversation actually isn't going to benefit either of us because now the right. whole dyad is going to be in a state of dysregulation. Yeah. So if they're hyperventilating and, you know, yeah. they need... Yeah, and a lot of people yeah. from that point of activation, like we described earlier, do become completely dysregulated and can actually create a not safe situation for the entire experience. So right. to be clear, when we're talking about boundaries, if we need to put a limit on our availability in a given moment, the goal would be to revisit that moment at a time when we're a bit calmer. So that's not necessarily being unsupportive. I know that that's challenging for a lot of us. We feel like, oh my gosh, if my partner needs me right now, I must, I, I feel this way, I must be available. What about in the situations where I don't have any resources left, where I'm exhausted, where I'm having my own emotional reaction? Yeah. So being available in that state isn't necessarily um, the goal. So speaking to the people pleasers out there, um, I re read a book very early on in my healing. It's called Not Nice by Dr. Aziz Gazupura, and that was so helpful to me because it's about boundaries, actually, the book, though it describes, and as its title states, it really unpacks this concept of nice um, and this idea that we do, and again, I was raised in that family where we do have to endlessly put other people first um, with this idea that we're being loving or that that's what support is, and my family would even use this language, that's what family does. And like yeah. I said, I, I, I can make an argument that showing up 
in our own reactivity, in our own space of wounding, you know, with depleted resources isn't actually beneficial. So for a lot of us, the people leaders, <laughs> boundaries are part, probably the most difficult part of the journey, but learning those areas where we can say no or be a little less available in service of our own needs actually yeah. in the long term benefits that relationship. I'll give you one example and maybe you can confirm this or, or deny it, but I think there's a myth or, you know, there's a, a common idea that we should not go to bed angry. But I tell you what, like if my wife and I are having a disagreement and oh, hold on a second. there we go. I'm going to say that again. So I think there's a common um, belief, but I think it's a myth that we should not go to bed angry. And and I completely disagree with this because if my wife and I are having a disagreement and it's midnight and I'm just spent, like I'm fatigued, I'm grumpy, uh, I'm half asleep, having an argument or a debate or even a serious discussion, is the, the timing is all wrong and it's going to be terrible. I have found that going to sleep angry Waking up tomorrow morning and then hitting it fresh, I have a whole new perspective. And maybe that's what you're talking about. Like um, sometimes you just have, do not have the capacity to go there. And so you need to create the, your boundaries or even if you're trying to please the other person, you need to just say, listen, let's pick this up in the morning because I'm just, I'm wrecked right now. Yeah, we're actually in a different brain. We're back in that emotional amygdala subconscious area, you know, where yeah. our reactions are more often than not governed by our past. Now, not to say that hitting that timeout, the, the, the important piece is to revisit it. This isn't me suggesting that we sweep everything under the rug and just keep it yeah. moving. That obviously has its consequences as well. Um, though, and this happens in the middle of an argument, if you or your partner feel to be getting to that, as I call it, point of no return, right, where I'm starting to get really agitated before I know it, I'm going to start saying things that I don't necessarily mean or doing things that I don't necessarily mean, now is the time to call it. And that's what's our, in my opinion, individual responsibility for me yeah. and myself so that I can either know how to regulate myself through those difficult moments in a conversation or know where my point of no return is and know then how to speak from that moment and say and ask to put a pin in it. That also means me respecting and honoring the person across from me who might have a different moment who might want to stop sooner than it's comfortable for me to stop, right? Yeah. Or need longer on the back end. I want to have this conversation as soon as I wake up. Are you up yet so we can talk about this? <laughs> my partner might wake up and might not have slept all night. And maybe tomorrow isn't right the time. So this is where it gets difficult and complicated. But like I was saying, honoring authentically that we're different humans and we're going to operate at different speeds. Love it. Well, I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, maybe I will back in the personal therapy session with you in the future. Um, but maybe let's close this out by giving some a final word of advice. Um, the title of your book, How to Do the Work, Recognize Your Patterns, Heal from Your Past, and Create Yourself. Um, we didn't talk too much uh, directly about creating that self, although we danced around it a lot. Maybe some parting words of advice for people who are trying to figure it out. Yeah, so the parting word of advice actually on the create yourself piece comes from that practice of consciousness. I really can't reiterate how important it is to cultivate that space in your life, to learn how to be present, to learn how to see those habits and patterns, right? And that, that kind of fork in the road where those old reactions are waiting and over time to make the space for these new choices because it is through choice 
that we actually get to create our future. Otherwise, and this is what most of us are doing when we're in that stuck space, are just repeating our past and getting increasingly more frustrated, more unfulfilled and more resentful and are doing all of the things to try to manage and cope. So the parting word um, that I think anyone takes, that I hope anyone takes from hearing me, meeting my work in any way, reading the book, is on that importance of consciousness. Because consciousness, in my opinion, creates choice, and choices create a new future.